Good morning. Um, given all the breaks and the change in schedule, neither Corby nor Eric is here today. And so John Tomberlin's going to be uh, joining us and preaching the word today, uh, the Trinitarian life. Um, John has graduated in the last four years or so from RTS Orlando, and he is now on the staff at North Shore Fellowship, where he runs the Fellows Program, of which some of our congregation is a part, Courtney is a part, and so forth. So we welcome John today as a minister of the gospel and to preach the word to us. So welcome. Indeed, I, uh, I am the director of the Fellows Program. If, uh, if the Fellows have served Rock Creek well, people like Courtney McCorder, Maybe Molly King, Brandy Lab from last year. Several have been through the last three years. And I'm happy to take your compliments and, you know, say you're welcome. If they've been a thorn in your side, if they have let you down, um, I have many board members that I can direct you to to take complaints. And uh, here I have a listening ear. Um, I am John Tomberlin. Um, I serve on the pastoral staff at North Shore Fellowship. Despite my last time preaching for a while, my wife is at home pregnant with twins on bed rest. But my mom has her other three children, so I'm glad to be with you all on what feels like a swan song of sorts of sermons. Um, <clears throat> but if you would, um, would you join me in prayer as the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Um, we ask that you would be with us now by your Holy Spirit, that as we meditate on it, chew on it, hear it preached, that you would be pleased to rebuke us and correct us where necessary. You would give us grace to repent. Um, you would also encourage us as we see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up in the scriptures. And then you would also direct us to help us delight in your ways and to walk in your path. So, Father, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we in the church, and this is a little unusual for me. I've never done this, guy. I've got like 90 degrees here. Um, I'm not avoiding you all if, uh, if I don't give you a whole lot of eye contact. Um, we talk a lot about being like Jesus, and this rightly so. We want to be like our Lord. Uh, some of you might remember the bracelets. What would Jesus do? WWJD, those are still kind of a thing. That's, um, that's a very fine reminder to have. But the question begs us, what is God like? And we see this woven all throughout Scripture. Man, Adam and Eve put in the garden as the imago Dei, the image of God, to be like God out into the world, despite humanity's best efforts to rebel against that and the fall that ensues. God reveals who he is through the people of Israel and then culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So if we are to be like God, there is no better picture than to look at Jesus Christ. There are a few better places to look as far as what is Jesus like than the Bible. Now, for our purposes here this morning, we are actually going to be focused on verses 19 to 30. So the, 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 the last portion of this Philippians chapter 2, 19 to 30, is going to be our focus. However, being the guest preacher, 
Y'all are not in a Philippian study, I don't believe. Just I want to say a few brief words on, in context to bring us up to speed on verse 19. So a cursory glance at verses 1 through 18, if you'll bear with me. Verses 6 through 11, as many of you know, are a very popular hymn about Jesus Christ. Some of you are very familiar with this. Who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is what we call Jesus' descent, his humiliation and ultimate exaltation. Paul puts into beautiful words this wonderful description of Jesus. His servanthood, his lowly path. And we love falls from grace in American culture, don't we? When the celebrity kind of takes a tumble, look how they're on the pedestal and now they've been knocked down. We are fascinated and engrossed by these stories. This is not what Jesus did. There's been no greater descent, but he willingly takes on human flesh, goes down, lives as a servant, dies even to death as a common criminal on the cross. Then through that, through his obedience, he is then exalted above every name, that every knee, every tongue will bow and praise Jesus for who he is as Lord. That is a wonderful picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. But much of the Christian life I liken to landing a plane, this is what I mean by that. I grew up in lower Alabama near Fort Rucker. If any of you have been down that way, there is a helicopter base there at Fort Rucker. So many of my friends were pilots or future pilots. If you ever talk to a pilot, they will tell you two things about landing a plane, about landing a plane or a helicopter. The two things you want to keep in mind, the first one is the horizon. You want to take note of the horizon. If it goes too high or too low, you're in pretty bad shape as the plane is coming down. Well, the horizon, this illustration, would be Jesus. We do not want to leave Jesus behind. We want to keep Jesus in the forefront of our mind. And that wonderful description we have in verses 6 through 11. Let's remember that. But then also, the other thing you want to remember is the controls at your disposal. This minutia, fuel gauge, how much fuel you got, that really matters. Air pressure, that really matters. And so before us, with this horizon we've just kind of cursory glanced over, we come before us with some controls. Some like, find like, what does it mean to behold Jesus, and then how do we respond? Well, if you keep going, in verses 12 through 18, it's almost refreshing how normal the Christians in the early church were here in Philippi. You'll notice in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, that if you've heard the phrase, when the uh, cat's away, the mice come out to play, this was a temptation for even the early church, that when Paul is away, he doesn't want this early group of Christians to take their foot off the gas, as it were. He wants them to continue to obey, continue to even, what does he say, work out their salvation and fear and trembling. So we in the PCA here of the Reform Persuasion, I guess if you're hoping that I touch this one and really nip in the bud God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I'm not going to touch that one. Um, we just do well to affirm and let it sit, sit side by side, tension and all. We acknowledge God's ultimate sovereignty in salvation. But Paul is happy to say in the same breath, continue to work out your salvation if you're in trembling. That, the tension we might feel from that is appropriate, but he is okay to say grace and effort are not opposed to one another. But the grace of God does not make us apathetic. And even as we work, it is God working in us. And then verse 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. These things are good to repent of. If you find yourself grumbling and disputing, complaining among yourselves, it's good to stop that, to stop doing those things and to turn away from them. But this peculiar language in verse 15, if you notice, 
among whom you shine like lights, or you will shine among them like stars in the sky. That's a very peculiar thing that Paul is saying right there. I want you to hold that thought until the end, okay? But if you continue on, verses 17 and 18, Paul is suffering for the gospel's sake. He's in jail. He knows the fruits of his labor will not be in vain if the church perseveres. And he even rejoices in the midst of suffering. So that again, if you're frustrated at that kind of really fast 1 through 18, uh, I feel you. There's plenty of things you can say about all those verses. But now we're brought up to where Paul gets in 19 to the end of the chapter. Now, why these peculiar verses? At least I hope they're a little peculiar to you because I think they are. Um, why are these details in the Bible? We have just Paul and Timothy Epaphroditus, and these just kind of random exchange. Um, why are they in here? Is it just to kind of prove that this letter actually happened to real people in real space in real time? Is that it? Like, why are these details in here? And I'm not the only one that kind of thinks that. Just here's what a few people say about this text. People that believe the Bible to be a true book. Verse 19 to 30 contain no direct teaching. They contain tiresome details. Once you dispose of verse 19 to 30, they actually give way to the joy of the letter. These are not ringing endorsements, but we as Christians do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. All can be profitable for our rebuke and correction and encouragement. And so it's nice to visit some texts that don't get a whole lot of love, I think, from the pulpit. And it has the double benefit of, if you haven't heard them preach before, the bar is set a lot lower for the guest preacher. So, yes, you know, it's, uh, it works on so many levels. Um, I like these verses for this reason. My wife, if she were here, could tell you um, I am not an engineering mind at all. I'm very intimidated by even do-it-yourself, put-together type things. Um, If I get something from Ikea, you know, Ikea does a good job at making it as easy as possible. But I honestly almost get cold sweats when I open up the instruction booklet and I see the parts. I'm like, this is very intimidating to me. I know that's sad. However, once I actually get my hands on the wood and actually are starting to put it together, then I can see it. Then it becomes a little clear to me. And I think that is what we have in verse 19 through 30. We have some wonderful, really tangible examples of what a life enamored by the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done and who he is, what that looks like. So if you're not trekking with me yet, I hope so you will be in just a minute. Notice 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also would be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal, what Paul is saying in these verses. One that's worth noting, again, reminds you that Paul is in jail, okay? Timothy, he acknowledges, is the most useful to him. In, in, verse, I mean, uh, in chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul takes note of these preachers that are in his midst preaching from ulterior motives for selfish ambition or vain conceit. Like there are other preachers, maybe Christians in his midst that he could have sent to the Christians in Philippi. And who does Paul, when he looks around in the same breath, he says, the one that was most dear to me and most helpful is Timothy. And that's the one I'm going to send to you because he also is concerned for the welfare of the church, likening that to the actual concern of Jesus Christ himself. 
to say all this, it's good news to say that Jesus Christ is personally concerned for the welfare of his bride, and he administers to his bride through the saints, through the people that make up his bride. A fancy way of saying that is to say the church is the object and the instrument of the blessing of Jesus Christ. That those that Jesus calls to himself are also then, in turn, they minister to one another. No one does this as well as Timothy as far as who is in Paul's midst. And that's the very brother that Paul wants to send Timothy. That's a very big deal. And then if you keep going, in verse 25, we have this weird Epaphroditus guy who doesn't get a whole lot of highlighting in the Bible. Who was he? This guy that risked his life? To take care of Paul, then Paul also wants to send him back. Um, Epaphroditus almost dies in doing this work. The Lord is merciful. He recovers. Paul is eager to send him back. And again, consider the nature of Epaphroditus' work. He travels. He ministers to a, a fellow brother in jail. and He risks his life doing so. And Paul is like, this is a very commendable, worthy thing. So to say all that, I think when we look at Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church, them having love for one another, ministering to one another, even though Timothy is the most needed to Paul, he sends him back to them because he loves the church so much. These are wonderful, tangible examples of the saints loving one another. Now, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of what this does not look like, and this is part of what I feel like I grew up in the church context I grew up in. Um, some of you know I'm a meat cutter by trade. I was a meat cutter for about nine years, so I like illustrations that have to do with the grocery business, particularly meat. Um, about 20 or 30 years ago, the Butterball Turkey people, they started a Butterball Turkey hotline, right? So they're like, we're going to put one lady with one phone, slap the number on the turkey. So if anybody has a question about how to cook a turkey or whatever, safety, handling, they can call this line. And so the um, my first day, the phone line opens up. They get about 7,000 calls. So this one lady is overwhelmed. Like, you know what? We've really underestimated the questions people have about turkeys. Let's, let's really expand operation here. And so after a while, there's like a hall of fame of phone calls that have come into the turkey line. You can find these online of some very peculiar questions that have come to the turkey ladies. You know, men too, I'm sure. Well, one is um, a lady found a turkey in her freezer that had been there for 20 plus years. So she called and said, hey, I've got this turkey. It's been there 20-something years. Is it still safe to eat? Well, the lady on the, on the Butterball hotline, I think, put her on hold, got some second opinions. And her response was, well, from what I gather, if it has stayed frozen for 20-plus years, it, it will be safe to eat, but it probably won't taste very good. So the lady with the old turkey said, yeah, that's what I thought, too. I'm just going to give it to the church. I said, that's like... <laughs> That's not what we're after here. I mean, as far as what we see in Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, we often like, you know, this, they're, they're raising the bar as far as love to one another. Or we're not after 20-year-old turkeys, you know, something I don't want, don't need, or won't taste good. Um, and it's, it's always tricky to summarize the application of the gospel, right? Like the things you could leave out. But I do think one way to do it, as far as if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of his, one way to summarize a life lived is my life for yours within the body, my life for your sake. And I think you notice these very endearing, affectionate terms that Paul uses when he's talking about Epaphroditus, brother, co-worker or co-laborer and a fellow soldier. Um, if you just 
think about those just for a minute. We use familial language all the time in the body, brother, sister. You don't hear that a whole lot. That's more of a Baptist church thing, Brother John, Brother Eric. But nonetheless, we do still use those terms. Now, despite some of our families not being what we want them to be, I do think we have a deep understanding of familial relations are very deep. And when they are rich and good, those are very, very dear to us. Coworkers, fellow meat cutters, like I have to say about two words to, and like we speak the same language. Like we're already affectionate just by the trade that we share. You know what it's like to get up at 6 in the morning, get in a cold room, have your hands hurt, blood on the table, break down a, uh, a bandsaw. We know what each other goes through. There's a, there's a bond there immediately. A fellow soldier, if you've ever been around Army veterans, especially the same battle, you know how dearly affected they are towards one another immediately. Very little has to be said. So the question to Rock Creek Fellowship is, do you think and live about one another this way? Are these merely your acquaintances, people you pass, or are these your brothers and sisters, your co-workers, your fellow soldiers? I think this is what's going on. When I asked you to hold on to that uh, verse 15, the uh, shine among them like stars in the sky, I think something much deeper is going on here than simply Jesus died for you. Jesus is God. Therefore, be nice to one another. That'd be a very shallow way to put this. So don't let anyone ever convince you that the Trinity does not have practical application. What little we know about the Trinity is mysterious and odd as it is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We overhear some conversations in the Psalms, Jesus's prayer in John. Um, We do know that they each serve and love the other. So who God is, this communal, mysterious three-in-one, one-in-three God, each person loving and serving the other, I think that's exactly what Paul is after, that through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you are being made into the image of God as you learn, love, and serve one another. Now, Paul knew his Old Testament. That would be an understatement. Paul was very well steeped in it. Now, everyone might not be convinced. I am convinced of this. I do think Paul is alluding to Daniel chapter 12 when he uses this shine like stars imagery. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But in Daniel chapter 12, which is a very peculiar book, hard to interpret, at the end of that book, Daniel writes this. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So immediately you're thinking, oh, this is the, the last day. The last day, the book of life is going to come out. Those who sleep in the dust, people be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to contempt. This is the final day of judgment. And you'll be right. But then Daniel writes this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel uses this weird shining imagery, shining among those like stars in the sky, but he seems to be speaking in a very future last day sense. And this is what I think Paul is arguing, that as the church loves one another, if you, again, just perusing Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, of being like Jesus and loving one another, I think what Paul is getting at is that the way things will be in the eschaton, the last days are breaking forth in the here and now through the Spirit. The fancy way to say this is an eschatological intrusion, which Courtney knows is a fellow, but that sounds really seminary-ish, but it's really not. It's just simply saying the way things will eventually be for the saints perfected 
and them loving each other well as they behold the very face of God, that is breaking forth into space and time now as the church loves one another, empowered by the Spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And what does he say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we talk about a theology of mission, of evangelism, whatever you want to put under that umbrella. I would say what cannot be forgotten is the church loving one another. And that is a robust, rich, deep call. If there's anything that I would tell the church anywhere, global, do not take your foot off this gas pedal. Do not keep your finger off this button. Like, keep on doing this. It would say continue to love one another well, all the more. And so it is my hope for Rock Creek Fellowship. It is my hope for the church global that as we behold the wonderful picture of Jesus Christ in the scriptures and who he is and what he's done, that would then in turn, through the Spirit, cause us all the more to love one another deeply, not with frozen old turkeys, not with simply acquaintances and like passing glances, as family members, as co-workers, as fellow soldiers. So would God give us help? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you great thanks for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus in the fact that he has accomplished our salvation, that by his descent and his ultimate exaltation, we can rest in his finished work. And Father, I do pray for this body of believers. I pray this for myself. I do pray this for the church corporate everywhere, that we indeed would love one another well, that we would be known as your disciples by our love for one another, that the aroma of Christ would be rich as we seek to serve the other, that we would be not so caught up in our own selfish ambitions and vain conceits that we would look to each other's interests. So, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, give us great help that Jesus would be glorified all the more and that we indeed would look like your Son in our life together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.